0: Chapter 11, I want to finish up on verse 21. Verse 21 says, assuredly, hand to hand, you can bet on it, the evil man will not go unpunished. That's the negative. The contrast is, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. We're making the point that Not only is there immediate deliverance, but there is a deliverance down the line for an individual's family, and the perpetuation of deliverance for generations to come. We talked about Noah as an example of God's deliverance. We talked about Lot. Uh, We were just in the process of mentioning Esther. In Esther chapter 7 through 9 especially, there is the deliverance of the Lord. The man Haman wanted to destroy the Jews uh, just out of uh, rage and jealousy and uh, had a plot and a plan uh, not only to destroy the people, but their leader, Mordecai, to hang him on the gallows, provided really ten gallows, so that all of the leadership could be hanged publicly, and then there'd be a great slaughter of the people. And uh, Haman and his brothers were hung on, uh, or Haman and his family were hung on their own gallows. It backfired. And simply because of the deliverance of the Lord and using, of course, the courage of Esther. The Hebrew, three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fiery furnace. Another picture of deliverance. I love that story. You know, it says, first of all, that they yielded their bodies to not worship idols, not bow down before the the image that Nebuchadnezzar made. And then they they told the king, they said, King, we're not going to bow down, and God's going to deliver us. But if God doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to bow down. That's the kind of attitude that the person who has real faith in God should have. You don't... You don't... uh, uh, Deliver, you can't deliver yourself you're unable to to uh, have enough strength for that 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 is against you the lord provides his own deliverance in second chronicles chapter 32 maybe we could just turn there second chronicles chapter 32 you have this story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib. I want to just um, read verse 21 of the previous chapter and then read a little bit here in this chapter this morning. Verse 21 says, Every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandment, seeking his God, He did with all his heart and prospered. That's quite a testimonial, isn't it? Especially in an apostate age where for a a period of a hundred years, there's been just steady decline. And here comes a man to the throne by the name of Hezekiah, who really trusts the Lord. And then it says, after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Keep in mind that just because you're faithful does not mean that you're going to be free from problems. Some people think that, that the, what, the, what the Bible teaches is that if I live for God and serve Him, that I'm going to be, I'm going to be free from problems. I'm not going to have any problems, no pressures, everything's, everything's going to be fine. Well, that's true later on. In heaven, we're not going to have to worry about things. But right now, Scripture says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Psalm 34. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. See, that's the point. It's not as though you're free from problems, but you have the deliverance. Now, here's a man who, Scripture states, is really faithful. Some of the kings that have gone before Hezekiah have seen little in the way of real serious pressure and problems. They've had a rather easy time. In fact, it's that very ease that has led the people to a life of luxury and a life of apostasy. They've turned from God and they're worshiping idols. They're saying, uh, uh, openly saying, look, we're sinning and getting away with it. God doesn't care. And so as a result, this man man, uh, Hezekiah comes to the throne and he's a good man, and he's a godly man, and what he does in the service of the Lord, he does with his whole heart. He gives it all he has, and what happens? He's got an attack. Sennacherib, all of his forces from Syria coming down upon them, invading Judah, besieging the fortified cities, and thought to break into them for himself. Now, verse 2, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, that he intended to make war in Jerusalem. He decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down, erected towers on it, and built another outside the wall, and strengthened the Melo in the city of David, and made weapons and shields in great number. He appointed military officers over the people, gathered them to the square city gate, spoke encouragingly to them, saying... Now, remember, this is military preparation. He's made the preparation. He's done everything he could humanly. It's not as though he sits back and says, Well, I don't have to do anything. God's going to deliver us, so I'll just sit back. There was an an involvement in preparation, an involvement prepared to fight if need be, but at the same time, look how he encouraged the people. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude which is with him. For the, for the one with us is greater than the one with him. Here's a guy with godly guts. And, and the reason is because he had a trust in the Lord. Look at the next verse. With him is only an arm of flesh. He's only a human being. He's got soldiers. 185,000 of them. He's got a, 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 train, a training program for his soldiers. They're, they're, they're top-notch, crack soldiers. But with him, it's just the arm of the flesh. That's all he's got. With us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. I'll tell you something. There's a tremendous lesson on leadership in that tremendous leadership. When a leader has trust in God and is able to stand before the people and share that in a clear manner, the people will rely on the word of the leader and follow him, even to the death. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem while he was besieging Lachish and all the forces with him against Hezekiah, king of Judah, against all Judah, who were at Jerusalem, saying, Thus says S- Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you're remaining in Jerusalem under siege? Why didn't you flee the city? What in the world could you be trusting? Is not Hezekiah misleading you to give yourselves over to die by hunger and thirst by saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? His, uh, his spy program was pretty good. He knew what Hezekiah had said. Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship for one altar and on it you shall burn incense? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the land? Were the gods of the nations of the land able at all to deliver their land from my hand? He's saying, here's this king. He's come in. He's torn down all the altars. You had a whole bunch of gods. You had a shot at it. Because some of those gods, one of those gods might have been able to deliver you. None of the other gods from any of the nations have been able to deliver. But you, it, it, the more gods you have, the better shot you have, right? One of them might come through for you, but he took all of them down. You're stuck with one god. And now with that one god, you're gonna—he's—he's he's the only one you can trust. If he doesn't come through for you. You've had it, and I guarantee you, he's not going to come through for you. That's the taunt who was there among all the gods of those nations which my fathers utterly destroyed, who could deliver his people out of your out of my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? What's so different about your God, boy, that's a good question to ask, isn't it now? Therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less shall your God deliver you from my hand? And his servants spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to insult the Lord God of Israel, to speak against him, saying, "As the God of the nations, gods of the nations of the lands, have I have not delivered their people from my hand? So the God of Hezekiah shall not deliver his people from my hand." And they called this out with a loud voice in the language of Judah the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall, to frighten and terrify them, so they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem, as of the gods of peoples of the earth, and the work of men's hands. But King Hezekiah, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed about this, and cried out to heaven, Now watch. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with a sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hands of Hand of all others and guided them on every side, and many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and choice presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. Evie Thompson, who is the founder of um, now World Team, it used to be the West Indies Mission, was uh, did a little piece on a film strip that mixes this story with a story of of um, something that happened uh, down in the West Indies. Um, The way it's done, it's done with the two stories kind of running parallel and and um, so it it comes across a lot better on the film strip than it does than it does uh, just reading it. But I picked this off of there. It's a tremendous, tremendous comparison Uh, with ancient and modern, all right? So see if you can follow it with me. I'll try to clue you in when we change from story to story. He says, Hezekiah came to the throne after a hundred years of spiritual quiet in his land and a hundred years of spiritual decay on the part of his people. The king did everything he could toward lifting his people spiritually. He taught them about Jehovah, the God of love, the God of holiness, the God hates sin in the human race. He also repeated to them the story of God's ways, dealings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He told them of how Jehovah delivered them from the hand of Egypt and led them during the forty years in the wilderness. He explained to them how God expanded the nation and protected the nation under the hand of the great king David. Yes, Hezekiah taught them about Jehovah, the God of the Jewish fathers, the God of history, the God of the Bible. King Hezekiah taught them about his God. Then came Sennacherib, right in the midst of the spiritual revival. He sends the scourge of a foreign invader. Then he says this The opposition had organized what they called the steamroller. And what it was, was an immense gang, a a mob of, of hoodlums, of two or three thousand people. And they would go through the country and simply smash the houses of all the partisans of the opposition, simply ruin them. They'd go into a man's house, pull up his house by the roots, throw it away, burn it up, ruin the man. They had to kill the man because he tried to save his home. They cut him down, so they called it the steamroller goes back to the scriptural story. He sent Sennacherib, the monstrous, residuous emperor of Assyria. This man, Sennacherib, this monster with a heathen army at his back, sent three of his generals with most of his army to destroy Jerusalem. Back to the mission field. So the word came. Steamrollers coming. They were on their way. A mob of several thousand. You can imagine the consternation which laid hold of the hearts of the people in Jerusalem as they beheld coming in their direction that mighty heathen host. And here they were, just about a half a mile away. They were coming up, sweeping through the hills. There was a kind of tension for a little while. As far as I was concerned, and I want to tell you, some of our missionaries, they were really scared because they could have just ruined the whole compound. What shall we do? They came to me and said, what are we going, what are you going to do? How shall we meet this mighty force that arises against us? Oh, that the God of, that God of uh, King David, was present with us. I said to my wife, I said, Sweetheart, put on the coffee pot, because when those fellows come, we're going to serve them all coffee. <laughs> At that juncture, my friend, the God of Israel, the God of history, this God made a dramatic intervention in the affairs of Judah. Second Kings 19.35 puts that which happened in sound, simple language. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Listen. Some strange thing happened. When they got to our gate, they decided that somebody had told them, you don't have to go up there. Those people are not into politics. And they went on by. God intervening. And God met His people. And they never appeared. We had a lot of coffee after that. (laughs) Well, you see what I'm trying to say. We sing the song, He is able, He is able to deliver us. And He is. Our God is able. And you know, like the children of Israel in the fiery furnace, our God is able to deliver us. If He chooses not to deliver us, I'm still going to trust Him. He's trustworthy. You can count on Him. You don't have to worry about Him delivering you. Turn with me, if you will, to Second Corinthians 1. Second Corinthians one. In Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul begins by talking about suffering. A strange thing has taken place in Corinth. the The carnal church in the city of Corinth that we read about in First Corinthians are now under persecution, and has purified the church to a great degree. And so Paul, who had to write about the foolishness of the Corinthians and all some of their sin in First Corinthians, now talks a great deal about the healing power that comes in the midst of persecution. The suffering church uh, is is able to uh, to see things of the spiritual realm far better than the ones who are in ease and luxury. And he talks in these first verses about the fact that God allows us to go through suffering so that we in turn can comfort, and He comforts us and delivers us so that we in turn can comfort and deliver others. When he comes to verse 10, he's talking very personally. In fact, uh, earlier than that, verse 8, it really begins. It says, uh, we, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction." which came to us in Asia when we were burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life. You ever feel that way? Well, you know, I think of Hebrews 13, uh, you've not yet resisted unto blood striving... uh, Hebrews 12, you've not yet yet resisted um, unto blood striving against sin. Most of us have not suffered um, all that much, especially when you compare it with the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then even compare it with his apostles in those early days. I hear Christians today talking about their suffering, you know. And I know your suffering is very real to you. It's like puppy love, you know. It's very real to the puppy. Um, But there, there, there are degrees of suffering. And one of the best ways to alleviate your pain in the midst of suffering is to remember Job. Remember some others who have faced great trial. It gives you... It tends to give you a little more patience and endurance. And Paul suffered immensely, tremendously. But notice how he talks about it. Here, here he was. This was is the gut feeling that he had here, all right? They were burdened excessively beyond their strength, so they, they despaired even of life. Indeed, he said, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul saw even in the midst of that suffering, a purpose behind it, to teach him not to trust his own devices. You know, as long as you're strong, you're going to use your strength. The place where you really begin to trust God is when you run out of resources. And you see, if you have all of the resources in the world to draw upon, you keep drawing upon and drawing upon, it's a long time before you ever remember to to pray. Well, you know why people today in America don't pray the way the Bible talks about praying, the way we read about great men of God like E.M. Bounds and, and people like that who had deep prayer life? Primarily because who needs prayer? When was the last time you really had to pray for your daily bread? And we are prone as human beings to trust our own resources until we run out. And when we run out, all of a sudden we begin to learn to pray. You know, the tragedy of it all is that we should learn to pray no matter what. We should realize that the resources we have are pretty flimsy. And we should learn to trust God even when we have resources. We should go to the Lord first, thank Him for what He's provided. Tell Him we see it is from His hand. We know that He can take it from us at any moment. And recognize that we... We have to trust Him implicitly every moment of the day. You don't think that's true. Just, just for today, alright? Quit breathing His air. He gives you every breath. Without Him, you wouldn't have air to breathe. Without Him, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have any strength. So... Learn to trust Him in spite of of the fact that you may have resources on which you might depend. Learn to depend upon Him. Watch what happens. Now, not watch in verse 10. It says this, Who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and will yet deliver us, Now, you see, really, there are three things there. There's the past. He did in the past. He delivered us. He will in the present, right now, deliver us. And He will yet in the future deliver us. And then He tells them, we need your prayers, see? Joining in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf, for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. We're going to be delivered. It's going to take the concerted effort of God's people praying. It's an amazing little little, uh, phrase there. Really a phrase, it's one word, all right? But let me break it up. There is the prefix soon, which means with. Then the word hupor, which means under. And then the word guntan, which means work. (coughs) Those three words strung together in one Greek word tells us a number of things about prayer. All right, prayer is a cooperative matter. We do it together. There's a, there is a there is a with the word soon uh, the prefix soon used repeatedly in the uh, New Testament with the idea of of cooperative effort of teamwork. All right, so so prayer is a team effort. Secondly, marvelous thing about prayer is that it can be subterranean it can go underneath it can go beneath the problem beneath the difficulties in the second the first world war they they uh had a number of victories for the allies uh, that came about as a result of tunneling underneath and uh, accomplishing uh, in particular the setting of explosives and this kind of thing. They didn't have the air power and the, uh, the bombs and so on that they would have in the Second World War. And this was a strategy of the First World War. The men would get down underneath, and here the enemy was there, and they would tunnel underneath, and they were able to accomplish and subvert the, the power of the enemy because they were able to go underneath. Here's Paul, uh, removed from the Corinthian church some distance And they're sitting there saying, oh my goodness, Paul's in trouble, what can we do? And he's saying, boy, you can tunnel right underneath is what you can do. You can blow the the problem to smithereens, because you can get under this thing with prayer. You hear people say, get under the burden of prayer, right? Well, Paul's saying, I want you underneath. And then prayer is work. Prayer is work. Well, one reason we don't like it. Who likes work? Prayer is work. But prayer accomplishes victory. Prayer accomplishes deliverance. God has promised to deliver, but He's also promised to deliver in answer to prayer. Do you see what happened in the story of Sennacherib? Now, the people of Israel weren't in a place spiritually yet where they could do much in terms of prayer. But it says Hezekiah and Isaiah had a prayer meeting going on. Two guys, two guys who made a difference. They prayed, and God delivered. God is a God of great deliverance. Now, two things, then, are inevitable. The destruction of the wicked, and the deliverance of the posterity of the righteous. You can count on that. Go to the bank on that. God's guaranteed stamp is upon it. You can trust it implicitly. All right? Let's go back to Proverbs 11. That's what you call progress. We're getting there. Okay. You'll love this one. Verse 22. As has a ring of gold in a swine's snout. So is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. That's pretty picturesque, isn't it? The problem here is the problem of beauty without discretion. Someone has termed it beauty and the beast. A number of years ago, I read an article in a secular magazine about what happened to the second runner-up of the Miss America contest. It turned out that she had left that pageant, uh, Christ rejected, because she had come in third. The first runner-up, of course, takes the crown in the case that the other uh, gets married or some other thing during that year and can't fulfill the Miss America role. So there is some prestige to the the first runner-up. But the second runner-up, who is she? Uh, down through the years, you know, who remembers who came in third? Nobody. She left very disillusioned. And they followed her life and traced it to her suicide about five years later. And they discovered that with all of the rejection that she felt, which was not rejection at all, to get that far, indicated that she, no doubt, was a very talented and beautiful young woman nevertheless for her it was failure and she became a prostitute and then ultimately committed suicide a very sad story very sad tale breaks your heart when you realize here's a girl who is among the most beautiful by our rating beauty and every culture has their own idea of beauty of course but by our, our terms of beauty, here she was, one of the most beautiful women in America. And yet, she had no character to carry her through a crisis like that. We make a great mistake, men, as we raise our daughters, in emphasizing unduly the physical aspect of beauty. You look at Scripture. Scripture will comment on beauty. It tells us that Joseph was a handsome young man. Now again, handsomeness, by that culture's evaluation, is much different than the handsomeness we think of today. But we emphasize the physical beauty, and often make comparisons that just are unfair. They took a survey a number of years ago among very attractive women in Hollywood, and they discovered that only about 1% of those women considered themselves to be beautiful. And when they asked them why what would make you say you're not beautiful?" they all had a flaw. My nose is too long, my ears are stick out too much my My hair is too soft or too uh, too wiry. Uh, every Every woman had a different thing, but everyone had focused on a particular defect in their beauty, and they had concluded that they were not beautiful that there was a higher standard of beauty. I think if you trace that back, you probably would find that they had been told, they had been told what beautiful was by people, and they'd made a comparison. I mentioned already twice the the cultural difference. We had a young fellow in our youth group in Montana, and uh, his parents were from the old country. Um around Bavaria or some place in there I I can't remember the exact country and they spoke very broken english and um the kids were american you know they had grown up in the american culture and one day he he brought home after church one of the best looking girls in our in our youth group i mean she's just a petite little you know doll and uh, His parents took him aside, and said, I know you think she's nice, but she's not beautiful. What do you mean she's not beautiful? Could she milk a cow? Could she build a house? (laughs) That is beauty! (laughs) The amazing thing is that this kid, we went back to Montana a few years later, And he, he, in the intervening time, had gotten married. And he married an Amazon. (laughs) Great big gal that could milk a cow, (laughs) build a house. (laughs) He'd found a beautiful woman. Wonderful girl. Wonderful girl. And attractive in her own right. But, I mean, you compare the two, you know, it is quite quite a thing. But that's the influence that parents can have. You... You see, they could see beauty in a totally different area, in totally different dimension than we ordinarily see it. We're hung up on beauty. And scripture, when it talks about a woman, talks far more about her inner beauty and inner character than it does about her outer beauty. There is no kind of a thorough description of what a beautiful woman is in Scripture, in terms of physical attractiveness. There's no description of how long her nose is, or how big her ears are, or what color her hair is, or any of the other multitudes of things that we would talk about. The Scripture, when it describes a woman in her beauty, describes primarily character. You don't really find anything much about physical beauty, although it's alluded to, in Proverbs 31, and the woman of capacity there. And so, here in this uh, emblematic dishtick, just, uh, in this case, the second line gives a didactic statement, a teaching statement. The other line, in this case, it's the first line, illustrates it. We start with the illustration and then the didactic statement, putting it together in an emblematic dishtick. It's recognized often Um, by its as, as this so that uh, statement. That's the way you recognize the emblematic dish tick. Now if it were us writing this since we tend to put so much emphasis on that outward appearance, we would have spoken of beauty or as having some redeeming value and the lack of character a bit disappointing, wouldn't we? I mean because of our You've got this woman now, and by some standard, she is physically beautiful. And we would think, well, you know, she's she's a hog in her character. But at least she's got this going for her. She's a beautiful woman. You know, Scripture doesn't see it that way. Solomon, as he wrote this, and he had experience with women, believe me, beautiful women. But he... He sees it as, as the, the fact that it's a total, complete, absolute waste to have a woman who has physical beauty. She has nothing, absolutely nothing, if her character is marred, if she lacks discretion. The way we would see it, we'd say, Oh, it's, it's sure too bad she's not a nicer gal. Too bad she doesn't have a little more discernment. Too bad she isn't a little more prudent. She's such a beautiful woman. But boy, what a comparison is made here. Now it begins with the words, as a jewel. The word for jewel is the word nazim, which is used 17 times in Proverbs. Uh, it comes from an unused root, and the root meaning is, is really unknown. Uh, but it's, it's used in terms of a of a, uh, a nose ring or an earring, uh, something of this kind, uh, not a jewel as the King James has it, but rather as a, as a, a, a ring. And it, it, the people in that day, uh, some of them, wore nose rings. Sounds strange to us in our culture, although you never know what's going to happen next in our culture. Uh, <laughs> but it probably should be translated here as a nose ring of gold. Or as an ornament of gold, ring in the ear or the or the nose was the, both of them were a sign of of luxury, and uh, some cultures are so opposed to any kind of jewelry worn uh, in the ear or in the nose uh, that that they despise it. But there were many many cultures in the ancient world, particularly in the Near East, where the nose ring was very very common. In Ezekiel chapter sixteen verse twelve. Uh, the word here, Nazim, is used of the blessing of God on the city of Jerusalem. And this is God speaking of Jerusalem as a city uh, personified, all right? And he says it's like like a gold ring in your nostril, all right? So it's not as though God had forbidden the nose ring. Don't go around wearing nose rings now just because of that. But in any event, it's just one of the things that that uh, that was used in the ancient world to speak of of extreme luxury. It was it was going beyond the ordinary uh, to be able to afford to to put a gold ring in one's nose. In Job chapter forty two verse eleven, it was a part of the offering brought to Job after his illness. They brought an offering to him, and uh, he, would, he had been healed by God and restored. And uh, when they when they came with an offering. Uh, There was in, among the other things that were brought to him, there was a nose ring. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 21, it's mentioned as part of the attire of idol worship. One of the things that the the priests and priestesses did in terms of of their worship of idols was to have nose rings and or earrings. It's one of the reasons why uh, their... It's probably a, a justified reaction against uh, the nose ring, at least in our culture, and and um, in some cases, in some circles, uh, the earring, um, because it, in a modern sense, is associated with pagan practice in various parts of the world, and uh, even in Bible times, to some degree, was associated with idol worship. And uh, it's been historically true that that uh, believers uh, tend to shy away from those things that are associated with with idol worship. Doesn't mean necessarily it's wrong to wear it, but that's one of the reasons why some people are pretty legalistic about it and won't wear it or won't wear anything of that sort at all. But it's not necessarily in itself wrong. In Exodus chapter 32 and verse 2. It was a part of the offering for the tabernacle. When the people came out of Egypt, they had nose rings and they had earrings. It was a part of the collection they took up from the Egyptians when they spoiled the Egyptians. And uh, so they, they brought the offering. If we want another reference on that, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 35 verse 22 as well. Also in the time of Gideon, in in, uh, Judges chapter 8, verse 24, Uh, you can see from the description there that it was a a prized possession. Uh, Judges 8 and verse 24 says this, Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites prized the the uh, gold earring. So the uh, the idea here would be either the earring or the nose ring. And obviously, because of the description, the illustration, it's speaking of a nose ring. It's talking about a ring in the in the in the snout of uh, an uh, a pig or a swine. The word for gold we have seen before is zahab. It's uh, Literally, the root means to shimmer. It's the shimmering metal, uh, that which is gold in color. And usually, it's speaking of the precious metal that we know as gold today. The most basic of... Uh, this is the most basic of all of the Hebrew words to describe gold. Most of the reference to gold had to do with uh, the building of the, the temple and the house for Solomon in Solomon's time. In, in the use of the word in the Old Testament, its used. Uh, periodically throughout the Old Testament, but where you find the most use of it is when it's talking about the tabernacle. Repeatedly, almost every verse there for a while, it's it's talking about gold, this and gold, that, gold, the other thing. God Himself is uh, described described as coming in in golden splendor in that description in Job chapter thirty seven verse twenty two. It's the shimmering splendor of gold. But here is gold seen in what seems to be a ridiculous circumstance. A gold ring, a precious gold ring, a prized commodity. But where do we find it? find it in the snout of a pig. Strange place to find a gold ring. What a waste. I'm sure that if you you follow at all the price of gold, and uh, particularly a few years ago when gold was... $800 $800 plus an ounce and you saw a heavy uh, ring uh, that you, you knew was pure gold and uh, you happened to be at the pigsty and you saw this snout of this pig wallowing in the mud and, and here is this thick gold ring in that thick pig's snout there's not a one of you that wouldn't think in their mind What a stupid thing. A pig with a gold ring? It's ridiculous. Now, the term in a swine's uh, snout, the the swine, was this word, C-H-A-Z-I-Y-R, Shazir. And the root simply means enclosed. It was was a word that meant a penned animal. Usually, though, it was a pig or a wild boar that it was speaking of. In Leviticus 11.7, we have a description of the pig as an unclean animal. And in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 8, Moses, in giving his recapitulation of the law, said, don't eat their flesh, dealing with the swine, with the kazir. It's don't eat their flesh or touch their dead carcass. Uh, because they were the most despicable of animals, it spoke of uncleanness, it spoke of shamelessness, it spoke of rudeness and debauchery, a Sow among uh, among the egypt uh, the Egyptians. you know the Egyptians used pictographs or hieroglyphics, and uh, they would they would ha- have a pictograph the same thing is true incidentally in the hebrew language it it in a sense is a pictograph. I think I mentioned that to you a few weeks ago. But that the hieroglyphic for uh, a fool was a picture of a pig. And that pig represented to the Egyptians in their writing a fool. A rabbinical uh, interpretation likens the pig to the student of the Torah who abandons himself to immorality and thus defiles the Torah of which he had been the student. It's a matter of of shame, indecency. And often, often in Semitic literature was related to to, uh, moral disgrace. A person called a dog was a Gentile. A person of your own people who had shamed himself morally was a pig. Strange, because it carries over today um, in, in our language. Many, many times you hear, uh, not necessarily a, always justified, but you hear women who are unliked for one reason or another, described as pigs. She's a pig. You hear that in common language in our country today. Second Peter Chapter two and verse twenty two. Second Peter chapter two. Verse twenty two. False prophets. False teachers. It has happened to them according to the true proverb a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. The character of these people was flawed. There was something wrong inwardly. He's described as being like a dog returning to its vomit, which is a very true thing. Proverbs twenty-six eleven talks about it, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. You can take a pig. You can scrub it. You can even teach it to do tricks. They're not very smart, but you know. It'll jump through a hoop or something like that. Put a pink ribbon around its neck and it can be your pet pig. But let it get near a puddle and it's going to return to the mud. It loves the muck. It would far rather be dirty than clean. Tragic that there are people whose character is like that. The word snout is a little particle off means nostril. It's from the word anoph, which means to breathe hard, to pant. And sometimes it's used for the, for the whole face. But generally, it's speaking of the, just the, the nostril of a person so, or an animal. The word is often used of those that are snorting in anger. Because that has to do with that part of the, of the face. J. Vernon McGee asks the question, Have you ever seen a pig walking around with a gold ring in its snout? Well, he answers, there are a lot of them out here in Hollywood, California. <laughs> they are beautiful women with no discretion. <laughs> I love that. All right. Now, the words, so is, are not in the original the, the common verblessness of of uh, the the Semitic languages, but so is is understood there. In the case of making a comparison here, the Hebrew the Hebrew language actually cannot express as so like we can you know, w- you know with words. But the absence of it implied is even stronger. All right, what it does is set side by side an obvious incongruity. And it leaves the reader to make the association, and that has a a, a, a verbal power to it that's not present in a straightforward language like we have. We don't generally understand a lot uh, in terms when we when we say a sentence we say it, but often things were, were were taken from a sentence particularly to give emphasis. in this case it's they can't really express as so with two words like that and so. Uh, they they just uh, uh, let you draw the conclusion. Obviously, it's an as-so type of situation because the two are obvious, obvious incongruities. When beauty is misused and lacks discernment, it's misplaced beauty. That's the point that he wants to get across. So he makes this comparison. Now, a fair woman, the woman is... Isha, and Isha comes from Ish, Ish, Isha, opposite Ish, the opposite of the word, Ish was the word for man, one of the words for man, along with uh, the other well-known word, Adam, or Adam, Um, we know about Adam in uh, Genesis chapter 2, and so on. But Isha is the opposite. Adam, excuse me, ish, uh, is a word that in its root form and its Arabic, particularly its Arabic root, has to do with, with something being firm or hard or set. The idea is that, it can be that of leadership. Isha is the complement to ish the completing of ish, and means the opposite, soft, tender, pliable. And therefore, it's a beautiful description of what man and woman really are, and what um, Adam was lacking when God saw it was not good for him to be alone. Uh, in, In form, the word ish is very close to the word off, snout. And it uh, makes it a poetic, poetic comparison so that uh, phonetically in the Hebrew there was, some, uh, there was some connection in this particular proverb. Although that's rather uncommon uh, to have uh, any kind of a um, phonetic poet, poetry in the uh, Semitic languages. The word fair is the word yafah. 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 Yaf. Um, the, the idea of Yaffa is that of beauty. Again, physical beauty differed in different cultures, but nevertheless, uh, concepts were basically the same. Beauty, uh, Scripture tells us, is to be honored as a gift from the Lord. <coughs> we read about Moses in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is giving his message... He mentions something that the text doesn't tell us in Exodus, and that is that that Moses was a, was a beautiful child. All right? And one of the reasons it was so hard to give the child up uh, and put him in the, in the basket and the bulrushes and so on. Joseph was a handsome, well-favored, beautiful man. And we don't ever use the word beauty in terms of men, do we? But they did in that day. Uh, a person being beautiful in, with a man, of course, would be equivalent to being handsome. David, according to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12, uh, was was a uh, handsome uh, young man. Uh, Esther in Esther 2:7 was a beautiful woman. Job's daughters in Job 42:15 they were beautiful women. And yet Proverbs 31. In verse 30, in describing the virtuous woman or the woman of capacity, there, the virtue means of moral capacity, really, uh, it describes her as, as uh, having beauty, but it says beauty is failing. Beauty is a fading vanity. Uh, what it says particularly is this charm is deceitful, <coughs> and beauty is vain. You can't count on beauty. Uh, staying with you. Uh, women uh, tend to to lose some of the outward exterior beauty with age. There are many beautiful older women, but y- you make the comparison with what we would talk about being beautiful when they were younger, and there, really there's no comparison. Uh, the beauty of youth is something that's entirely different than the beauty, beauty of old age. The beauty of old age is generally a beauty of character. Now, one of the saddest things that, I, that I've seen in recent days, to me, sitting in a restaurant, uh, sidewalk cafe type thing in the city of San Francisco, and to see all of the sad, ugly, older people walking down the streets. I, 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 you know, tend to hang around Valley Church a little bit, and, and we've got a, a lot of older beautiful women. I mean, women that are older in years, but there's, there's a radiant smile. There's the joy of the Lord. And you try to find an older person who walks down the street with a smile on their face in the city of San Francisco And you'll find it's very rare. I watch people, um, and you see them, you see them, if somebody tells them something amusing, they'll smile. It proves they can do it. But you look at them in a normal circumstance, and instead of having a pleasant look on their face, it's a growl. Tragic. And the older people become marked with that, so that it, it, you see one right after another of people that at this age should, should have the joy of the Lord on their faces. And they don't. Undoubtedly because they don't know the Lord. and Undoubtedly because of all of the tension of the city and all of the rest. But, oh, I'll tell you, the inner beauty is so much more important than simply the outer beauty. The outer beauty fades. Yafa represents beauty as an outward appearance though. Genesis twelve fourteen says that Sarah was Yasuf. Sarah, Sarah was fair. Genesis uh, twenty nine seventeen, Rachel was fair. Uh, it says though, maybe we could quick look at that. Genesis twenty nine seventeen. Genesis twenty nine Verse 17. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Uh, Another translation says she was beautiful in form and beautiful to look upon. All right? She was a good-looking chick. All right? Understand that? But this beautiful woman has problems. The outer beauty is not an index to her character. See? Because she has no inner beauty. Now, we'll talk about that inner beauty and the matter of discretion next time. It's time to go to work. Thank you, Father, for this hour, for the things that we've been able to learn. and.